Good morning, Milan. Good afternoon, Karachi. And good evening, Hong Kong. From Washington, D.C., I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. This show is designed to give you two of the top stories that we're covering in the International Intrigue newsletter with all the same great analysis delivered in your podcast app of choice in under 15 minutes. On today's show, I'm joined, as I often will be, by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss Nicaragua's surprising prisoner transfer and how the tragic earthquake in Turkey and Syria is shaping regional politics. It's all coming up. All right. Morning, John. Welcome to the first ever edition of Intrigue Out Loud. How are you doing? I'm very well. This is exciting. I'm uh, I'm thrilled about what we're going to be doing here. Yeah, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of each other. I mean, hopefully we can uh, integrate guests from inside intrigue and outside intrigue, but you are the boss, so you're the first person I will call every every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so our first story today uh, sort of caught everyone by surprise. I mean, I was at the I was at the gym to tell you the truth in the middle of the day on Thursday, and got a news flash that sort of stunned me that a group of dissidents from Nicaragua, which is you know, one of the most for lack of a better word, isolated regimes in the world, uh, that this group had arrived in the United States via chartered flight. So what's the story here and who's on board the flight? Yeah, I wish I, I wish I could say I was at the gym when, when I heard about this story too, <laughs> but it was probably more like on the couch or something. But um, it is, it's a remarkable story. Uh, it's a group of 222 political prisoners that had been held in prisons across Nicaragua uh, and they were released by the president Um uh, and flown to the US, as you said. And and when we say political prisoners here, it's a word that, you know, I think probably gets thrown about a little bit uh, randomly, but here it genuinely means what it, what it means. It's that they were journalists, NGOs, officials, students, and lots of these kinds of folks who are involved in domestic politics in Nicaragua, or even had considered running for president. I think it's interesting to, to kind of dig a bit deeper because it's not really clear why Daniel Ortega, the uh, Nicaraguan president, I'm not, it's not clear why he's done this. Uh, I think there's a fair bit of speculation that he's trying to reach out to the US and kind of a bit of an olive branch as a as a hope to kind of restart some negotiations with the US um, around his regime. But then again, he said on Thursday that uh, we're not asking anyone lift the sanctions. We're asking, we're not asking for anything in return. So it's kind of a bit of a confusing one because he still thinks they're terrorists, but he's let them go. It seems to me like it's it's sort of uh, the Rugrats technique where you feign disinterest in order to <laughs> get someone to like you. I think that might be what Ortega is doing here. But let's backtrack for a second here. Who is this Daniel Ortega character? Uh, he's a... Uh... Again, fascinating is probably a little bit too glib, but he's a very, very fascinating character in my view. He is he first rose to prominence in the in the nineteen seventies as a as a leading member of the left wing group, the Sandinistas. A lot of people will have heard of the Sandinistas um, because they overthrew Nicaragua's dictator in nineteen seventy nine. Um, it was a really turbulent time in the country's history. Uh, I, again, I think a lot of folks will be vaguely aware of this, the, this, the Contras, the Nicaraguan Contras that were funded by the CIA under Reagan to oppose the Sandinistas. That became the Iran-Contra deal in 1985, which was a huge political scandal. Uh, you know, Put simply, this period in, in Nicaragua's history was a really, really messy 
political time. Um, Ortega led a revolutionary government after deposing the dictator uh, and then became like the, the country's sort of official president um, starting in 1985 to 1990. Uh, he then kind of spent a period of time I wouldn't say outside politics, but outside elected office uh, and became president again in 2007. Uh, his most recent stint is since 2007. He started off a bit more moderately. I think he was kind of aware that he needed to moderate his stance to, to get reelected. Um, but since 2018, he's been ruthlessly cracking down on political opposition. Um, I think an interesting thing here, too, is that his wife is the vice president, if you need any kind of insight into what kind of uh, political show he's running. Um, and she's widely seen as the power behind the presidency and, and just as ruthless as he is in cracking down on opposition. So it's a complicated history, but he, he's a he's a he's a figure that's been in, in Nicaraguan politics for a long, long time. And a thorn in the side of the U.S., it seems, for a really long time. So assuming Ortega's intentions are, are less cynical than he's letting on, assuming he actually does want to work with the U.S. again. And mind you, uh, I, I don't I don't think Ortega or members of his administration are allowed into the U.S. Do you think this strategy of uh, transporting these uh, dissidents to the U.S., will it work? Yeah, I, I look, U.S. officials are certainly saying that it could work. Um, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken uh, has said some positive things and, and you know, his senior officials have, have echoed his words. Um, I think I've got the quote in front of me. It, he, he said, it's a constructive step towards addressing human rights abuses in the country uh, and it opens the door to further dialogue between the United States and Nicaragua. If we zoom out, I think the, the the Biden administration more generally is trying to reduce the number of these, you know, problematic, thorny relationships that it has. Um, I think a great example of that would be Venezuela. Uh, you know, obviously Venezuela has been on the out for a number of years now. And while I wouldn't say that they've, you know, made up and become close friends, there is this sense that the Biden administration is more willing to deal with the world the way it is rather than the way they would like it to be. Um, and they're being a bit more realistic about these relationships that are just, uh, you know, thorny and, and cause problems from time to time, but aren't necessarily the core US focus of foreign policy. Um, obviously, that's a, a generalization. Um, but, you know, it's interesting just to see how this uh, Nicaraguan situation develops, to see if that kind of general theory is, is supported or not. Today's show is sponsored by Policyware. Policyware is making public policy education accessible by bringing world-class experts from the top universities and think tanks straight to your browser. Their affordable training sessions will help make you and your team experts in digital trade and data flows, international investment policy, or whatever other public policy issues you're interested in. Go to policyware.org to learn more. All right. Welcome back. So uh, our next story has to start, unfortunately, with uh, a tragedy, um, which is the, the deadly earthquake in, in Turkey and Syria last Monday morning. Yeah, it's it's hard to know what to add to this kind of situation. Right. Um, uh, you know, we don't tend to cover natural disasters and, and tragedies like this because there isn't a lot that we can meaningfully add. But, um, you know, I think I think this is such 
a huge tragedy on a scale that, you know, it's quite incomprehensible that we'd be remiss not to at least talk about it briefly. Um, as of this recording, it looks like there's 21,000 people who've been confirmed dead across the region. So that's southern Turkey, northern Syria. Um, most of those deaths are in southern Turkey. Um, but obviously northern Syria is absolute disaster there. Uh, I think it's reasonable to expect that those are the confirmed numbers of dead. I think it's reasonable to expect that that confirmed number will rise considerably in the coming days and that the unconfirmed, like the total number is probably a lot, lot higher than that, which is, you know, it's, it's just, yeah, words, words fail you when you describe, when you try to describe how, how horrific it is. So what's, what's going on in that region of Syria? Yeah. Well, I mean, as, as you know, a lot of people will know the Syrian state such as it is, has been in a state of civil war for you know a decade now. Um, a lot of the, that fighting has been around Aleppo, which is in the northern part of Syria. So that's where a lot of the civil war devastation um, has occurred. You know, there's been a number of groups fighting in that region. There's Kurdish groups. There's the Syrian Free Army, which is a is, is a rebel group. There's ISIS. You know, because every area needs ISIS to make things better. Um, and of course, there's Bashar al-Assad's troops, uh, who have been absolutely ruthless in in putting down the rebels and you know indiscriminately killing civilians there for you know as I say the better part of a decade. So if you can imagine what a, a ten years of brutal civil war does to a region, you know if that's in your head, you're probably not far off what Syria, northern Syria, was like before the earthquake. All right, so we've we've got a, a decade of civil war, and now we've got this devastating earthquake. I mean, how does how does a country deal with this? I mean, it's it sounds like something of a of a failed state um, where the government has a, a hard time facilitating aid or support to these northern regions. How does this work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very fair to say Syria is at this point a failed state. Uh, and I don't think that you could in any way expect the Assad regime to provide aid to to the earthquake victims. You know, they, they may well try. I, I don't know about the Syrian domestic political situation, but the simple fact is that they don't have the infrastructure, the ability, the logistics to do it at the scale that's required. Um, you know, I think, it, I think it's an interesting observation that Assad has been under, you know, international pressure for a decade or, you know, a bit over a decade now, and he's managed to stay in power. Um, he's become a, a pariah across not just the Western world, the Arab world too has had its problems with Syria in the recent past. Uh, really, Syria has only managed, or Assad, I should be more specific and say, has only been able to survive because of the support of Russia and Iran. Um, so when you when you sort of sit there and say, okay, there's this guy who's completely on the outside of you know mainstream international relations, um, and then you've got a failed state, and then this devastating earthquake. How how do you actually physically get the aid, the recovery, the help that these kinds of people need, you know, it's it's a difficult question. I, um, you know, I don't have a great answer for it. I think it's going to be a big, a big lift by the international community. But are they going to be willing to deal with him? That's that's a big question. Are they going to be able to deal with him? I mean, that, that seems to be the fundamental question, right? You know, has there been any any outreach to the Assad regime since the earthquake? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's that's the classic question at the heart of this is that. Are you better dealing with a murderous tyrant like Assad to 
get the aid in to help the people or are you better keeping him on the outside and saying it's horrific but you know you, what you're doing to your people is worse and we won't sanction it um, for now the US and the allies are refusing to deal with him um, but some of the, the Arab countries that have had problems with Syria in the past are starting to make signs that they will deal with um, deal with his regime uh, last Thursday for example Tunisian president uh, Syed uh, said that his country would move to reopen diplomatic relationships with Syria um, since for the first time since 2011. So there's this sense that it might be um, that there might be some countries willing to deal with him. I think it's also important to note that it's not just like a diplomatic question, right? Like that's important because you, you can't give aid to a country when you don't talk to the leader. But it's not clear how aid will get to northern Syria. Um, the only road into northern Syria was through southern Turkey, and it's been uh, damaged so badly it can't be used anymore. So the UN has like a logistical problem on top of the political problem um, in helping these people recover. I, there's just like not, as I said before, there's no word to describe the situation in terms of how catastrophic it is for the civilians, the people who have done nothing wrong, going about their lives already in a civil war, and then this hits them. It's, yeah, I, I, you don't know what to say, right? Well, it's a, a tragic situation and a fluid situation. So we'll be talking about that a lot more, I'm sure. Thanks, John. You bet. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. Two Iranian warships that were scheduled to arrive in Rio de Janeiro in late February will no longer be given license to dock. Newly inaugurated President Lula da Silva has promised to chart an independent foreign policy, but agreed to bow to American pressure ahead of a visit to the White House on Friday. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa declared a state of disaster last Thursday due to an unprecedented electricity shortage in the country. The emergency declaration caps a tumultuous month for South Africa's energy sector. In addition to hours-long blackouts, the state energy company's CEO was poisoned last month. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, have you ever heard of Transnistria, the internationally unrecognized breakaway region in eastern Moldova? It's got a pretty wild history, but you'll have to check out the International Intrigue newsletter to learn more. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Wednesday.